Hi, I'm Dave Bazuki, founder and CEO at Roblox, and you're listening to Tech Talks, a podcast about the people and ideas that are shaping the future of the metaverse. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the most innovative technologies that have emerged in this new category and sharing stories with the Robloxians that are building them. Today, I'm joined once again by Arseny Kapulkin, technical fellow. I'm excited to continue the conversation we started in a previous episode where we gave a broad overview of Roblox technology. For the second phase of our conversation, we'll be diving deeper and warning to some of the people in our audience pretty deep um, into the foundational pieces of the Roblox engine, including object modeling, rendering, physics, and networking. Before I share how deep we're gonna be diving though, let's get started. I wanna re-welcome Arseny, welcome again. Oh, thanks, good to be here again. Yeah, so last time we were talking tech, I think this time we're gonna be diving into some of my favorite parts of the Roblox engine. And I almost, almost wanna give some of our listeners out there a little caveat that it's okay not to understand everything we're talking about. And at the same time, Arsini, I'm gonna do my best as you share in whatever format you want and however is comfortable to try to annotate where possible to help our audience understand where we're going. But it's almost like we're gonna be diving deep into the middle of the engine of your car or deep into the middle of that rocket engine where all the moving parts are. We're talking about the core digital stuff that really powers this immersive 3D stuff inside of Roblox. So it's gonna be fun. Yeah, I think the reality is, you know, there's so deep that you can go in really every area that we are discussing today. And if we wanted to have a conversation that kind of explains everything in as much depth as kind of we poured into all of this, it will be a 24-hour podcast, which we are not doing today. So um, I think there are some limits to what we are going to discuss today, but yeah, we'll try to do kind of comprehensive, but also deep at the same time. Yeah, and someday maybe we will have that 24-hour podcast. That would be fun. Um, let's talk first about what is typically called the object model. And I think we've done something very wonderful at Roblox and that uh, when, when we're playing Roblox and we have a machine on our desktop and then that server, that server has a big model of everything that's going on in the world. It's in memory, so it's really fast. We call it the object model. Can you share a bit about what that is, why we need it, and how it works a bit? Yeah, so I think from the very beginning, the way we thought about the Roblox worlds is what does the data look like and what do the APIs look like? How do developers interface with this data? There's many different ways how you can imagine doing this. So let's say you have a car, maybe the Roblox system should have the notion of the car. So maybe there should be a type of an object called the car and it has maybe APIs for wheels, et cetera. But this is actually not exactly what we did um, in the end. You can trace the history. I think early on, we were still kind of conceptualizing what exactly are the primitives that we are willing to expose? What is the balance between kind of exposing the raw atoms of the universe and exposing really, really high level concepts, right? So there is like interesting um, 
uh, leftovers in the Roblox engine, like flag stands and uh, things like this, where I think we weren't quite sure exactly which way we want to go. But I think over the last, uh, it's been 15 years, oh my God. Uh, over the last 15 years, I think we've uh, crystallized the notion where um, we say we don't want to expose objects um, that have very high level kind of semantical meaning in the sense that this is a car, this is a chair, this is not the primitives that we like to work in. But at the same time, we want to expose um, objects at the level that is a um, easy for developers to work with, B still represents a real world concept that is kind of believable and understandable. So for example, when we talk about cars, actually what a car is in Roblox is, it's a lot of different rigid objects that are connected with a lot of different um, joints, a lot of different, um, sometimes they are sort of simulated. You can imagine the, the suspension in the car, there's like an axle, uh, there's a hinge, things like this, right? Or sometimes the axle is welded to the frame of the car. And all of these things, when I say welded, what it actually means is there is an object in the object model that represents this weld. And so when a developer works with a game in Roblox, um, they see the car as this collection of these primitives that are grouped in the hierarchy. And for every individual object, they have access to the object, they um, have access to its properties, they have access to some methods on the object. And so the way the engine sees the world and the way the developers see the world through scripting, et cetera, is actually the same. It's this hierarchical structure of the objects and each object's ex exposed properties and methods, but the objects are grounded um, to some extent into the in the physical reality. So they're like a manifestation of physical reality, not all the way down to the level of atoms, um, but also not all the way up to kind of how humans reason about complex constructs like cars and chairs. Cool, yeah. And one of, um, for those Roblox fans out there, when Arseny mentioned flag stands, that was something very early on where we didn't quite have a good balance between higher level game constructs and the low level primitives. And we were actually adding too many high level constructs to the engine and we've kind of deprecated those and all gotten really consistent. And when we talk nested, Arsene, I think for our audience out there, sometimes when we look in our file explorer or our finder on the Macintosh, we can see a nested structure of folders and documents and applications. And that's a lot how Roblox Studio looks, except there can be thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of these pieces you've discussed wrapped into folders and then wrapping all the way up into that 3D world. Uh, yeah, in the place. Th th there's kind of two things to say there, right? So one is, yeah, the scale of this can be very large because if you think about this again, like the car isn't an object. A car is, a, there's no car in the Roblox engine, right? And so there's many, many different cars that people have built over the years. Um, some are very simple. Maybe you just have a frame, four wheels, a few joints that connect them, that's it. Some are very, very complex and intricate. And then you can imagine a world with many different cars and many different, uh, fun fact, the character of Roblox is also not really an object. It's a construct of many, many different primitive objects. And so the scale of all of these gets way into the millions. Um, and this is interesting because essentially this says, hey, all of our systems that handle 
uh, that work directly with the object models. So the network and replication, the serialization, all of the physics simulation, like all of these systems, they have to scale really well to these high numbers of objects. Um, and the other thing that's a bit different from the folder analogy, which is otherwise apt, is that the parent-child relationships are sometimes significant. Um, when we say there's a weld uh, between two parts, really weld connects two points on the bars, and these points are attachment objects that are parented under the bars. So sometimes the hierarchical relationship is purely for organization purposes, and this means it's up to the developer to figure out what the best thing is. But sometimes the engine assigns meaningful semantic information to this relationship. Now, there's one final thing we might see in this object hierarchy besides all these physical welds and parts and 3D objects and springs and all of that stuff. And it's super important and you work on it a lot and it's code. Right. And one of the early concepts about Roblox was when someone made a car, in addition to all those parts, there'd be code in there that might uh, handle the user interface. It might handle a control system that helps you drive the car. And that whole object, the car, is copy, cut, paste, share, distribute on the web. Can you share a little about the code objects that also show up within mm -hmm. this hierarchy? Yeah, so this is interesting because this is, I think, where the intuition for many programmers starts to diverge, kind of a pattern that is common in Roblox and that is useful in Roblox. Because um, as programmers, we often think about code and data being completely separate. The code lives in a separate repository, separate structure, etc. And maybe you have a car object in this code, and maybe you have a car manager that keeps track of a bunch of car objects. And for that to work, it has to somehow find the actual three objects in the world. But from the early days in Roblox, there was a, this concept that um, and you can do anything you want in Roblox. You don't really restrict to any specific way, but a very powerful paradigm is using these scripts as sort of behaviors where you have a car. So the car is not an object. The car is a lot of objects. Some of them represent parts, et cetera. And some of them are scripts. So when a script, a script is an object in that hierarchy and the script has rules for when it will run and when it will run, it can examine both the kind of um, the other objects in the same model, but also, of course, it can reach outside and you know set up interactions with the rest of the environment this way. So this is powerful because this means that you can um, take a car and if you model the car like this, it already has the code, the data, everything. You can publish it, then you can take this car and sort it into a different place that has nothing in common to do with your earlier place. And if that script works with the Roblox APIs, it will just work, like this car will just work. And this is a very, very powerful paradigm, both for new users who see an object in um, what we call toolbox, which is just a market sort of marketplace browser for assets, insert this object and this object is active. So it, the object behaves as you would expect it to. It has code in it, but you don't have to learn to code to have this code run, right? But it also is a powerful sharing paradigm outside of um, people who are new to the platform as well. And this means interesting things. This means, oh, you have a thousand cars in your world and every car has a script and all of the scripts are the same. 
And so this um, this is good in a way because this forces uh, this this establishes this paradigm of kind of reuse that is very um, very easy to understand for people who aren't deep in the code. But this also means internally we have a lot of optimizations that say, oh, um, you know, we don't store more more um, we don't store the script source or the script bytecode uh, more than once. We try to optimize the way execution state works because it can be different between these, but there are sometimes some parts that are shared. So there's a lot of interesting uh, kind of challenges associated with that. But I think in the end, essentially, if you ascribe by this paradigm, which again, you don't have to, but if you do, you can compose your place out of distinct shareable units that are then interchangeable and can be used elsewhere. Yeah, and in a sense, that's like the real world in that if I could copy and paste some of the cars in the parking lot, they would include the control system code driving the engine. They have a user interface. And so, you know, they're a self-contained unit, hopefully just like a Roblox unit is. Now, now we're not going to talk about all the efficiency we're doing on that code so it runs in parallel today and all the other marvelous things to make thousands of cars work at the same time. But one interesting thing that I think we've done really well at Roblox is keep this code working year after year so that it's safe to build that car with the code in it and hopefully it keeps running. So here's a trivia question for you, Arsene. On the, on the scale where one end is the DOS prompt, which I think for 20 or 30 years, weird DOS things still run, and then the other might be some very aggressive compute platforms that have kind of totally rebuilt their APIs. How, where would you put the Roblox API stability over the last 15 years? Yeah, so we are not all the way to the DOS prompt for sure. Um, but we are definitely, I think we are within the realm of some other Microsoft products, perhaps. For people who don't know, so on Windows today, you cannot create a file that's called con, C-O-N, um, three letters, which is a ridiculous restriction. But the reason it exists is because in DOS, decades ago, this was a special device that referred to the console output and you could like pipe some some command to that device and, you know, it was special. So you can create a file like this. And this restriction is still here today with Windows. So I think the way we think about this is, you know, we want to maintain compatibility. It's like really important for us to have the content run for really two reasons. One is there's games that people have made long time ago that are still precious to us, to their creators, etc. But also, if you... So Roblox, it's a platform, isn't versioned in a macro way. Everything runs on the latest version of Roblox all the time, which is a tremendous opportunity from an engineering efficiency perspective. Like, like it's really, really, really good for us and really for creators, but it has this cost. It has the responsibility that we bear now, right? Because you can't say, oh, you know, Roblox version 2.0 happens to break half of your 1.0 content, but you can migrate. Like, we don't do that. So, yeah, we um, the one thing that we try to do differently from the DOS era is DOS has a lot of this kind of explicit compatibility shims. It's like, here's this weird behavior. It was weird 20 years ago, but we have to keep it exactly as it is. We're going to try to detect if the program is happens to be using that and, you know, emulate that exactly. And so we try to not do that. So when we do this, there is a bit of a balance between how do we evolve the system to be better 
and how do we make sure that the content is either compatible with it or when it breaks, it breaks in small contained ways that we can work with developers to repair. So there is a bit of a balance. There's no like right or wrong answer here necessarily because it's a bit of an art as to how far do you go, right? How far do you push? But for us, the ideal changes are changes that essentially are compatible within reason. Doesn't mean that the object object's trajectory under the physics simulation is exactly the same between what it is today and what it was 20 years ago, well, 15 years ago. In fact, I hope this is not the case because we are improving the fidelity of the simulation, right? But um, we are trying to not break the intent that the creator has. Yeah. On the flip side, what's really important here is that also when we expose features and functionality to the developers, we also have to think about in the same way, you know, 10 years into the future, can we evolve the system and keep this API working? Does this API represent the pure intent that is compatible potentially with future evolution of the system? Or does it represent internal details that are probably going to change in five years? Yeah, I like how you said it's artistic because we have to make an artistic call a lot of times around those kind of things. Uh, well, for our audience, one of the things you've been mentioning is a physics engine, and we're going to talk about it. That original Roblox notion was always that the easiest way to build experiences and games and places to socialize would be the more we simulate the real world, the less you have to do as a programmer. And so we, I think 15 years ago, we used to say, yeah, in Roblox, when the wheel falls off the car, the car starts grinding the axle against the ground. And hopefully someday, um, if you make a big forest on Roblox and you're not careful, if you drop a match, you're going to just burn down the forest and that's going to be the default behavior. So we've always had this vision of physics and you know trying to simulate as much of the real world. Can you talk a little bit about what is a physics engine and how it might relate to that car once we built the car and put the code inside of it? Mm -hmm. um, just one thing to add, I think there's two ways to look at the sort of physics um, specifically, but also some other simulation systems like this droplets. One is that they um, make it easier for you to create the content that you wanted to create anyway. But the other one is that it unlocks emergent behavior that as a creator, you didn't really expect to happen. But this is sort of the power of the system where you build something that might seem simple and you code it for one specific type of thing to happen, but then the community playing your game finds out all of these amazing other things that can happen in your place. And some you may not like, so you'll have to write code to kind of prohibit them, but it um, allows your experiences to be richer even if you didn't expect it to, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, so the... Um, the you have this car and this car is built out of the individual parts and there's joints that connect them. Um, all of this data goes into the physics engine. So the job of the physics engine is in real time or as close to real time as possible is to update the positions and rotations, essentially the uh, transformations of this part to present it to the user. There's a lot of things that go into this because one thing that has to happen is you have to simulate the dynamics of each individual part, which sounds trivial, but there's a lot of interesting things even there. One thing that um, a lot of people don't know that we support now, there is this thing called um, Jabenikov effect, 
it's when you have a T-shaped handle and you are in zero G and you spin the handle um, along one axis. And when the handle spins, eventually there's like gyroscopic forces affecting the handle and it starts spinning along axis that you didn't originally spin it under. And this actually works today in Roblox. This didn't work like 15 years ago. We did it as a byproduct. Like we had to simulate gyroscopic forces and so now it works. But this tells you even the motion of the object like in abstract and zero G with nothing else colliding against it is actually not fully trivial. So we have to do that. Then we have to simulate collisions between different objects. So when um, the, the way the car works in Roblox is actually fascinating because there's a wheel and you know, people can build cars that are based on Raycast where in each wheel there's like a script that says, oh, um, shoot a Raycast down and then do some kind of math to model where the car should be. But you can also build a real car in Roblox with a real wheel that is, you know, like a cylinder, cylinder-like shape. Um, and when it collides against the ground, what happens is the physics engine resolves this collision by pushing the wheel outside of the ground. Um, this results in some extra force applied to the contact point, etc. All of these things have to be simulated and all of this can work, right? And then the, the final kind of layer of this is that uh, we support joints that are connections between different parts that have different physics behavior. So we support welds, which is a rigid joint. Um, so the two parts can't move in relation to each other. Uh, we support axles, hinges, a lot of other things. And this is actually important in cars. It's kind of funny. So we used to have um, the simplest car that you could build that functioned reasonably well in Roblox. Used to be there's just a frame and there's four wheels attached to the frame with a hinge. Now, if you really think about this, this car like this can't really work. Well, because, I mean, the, the first question is, how does the car turn? And the answer to this was tank turning, where the wheels on the right spin forward, the wheels on the back spin, spin backwards, and you can kind of turn. But it's all like, but, but then you drive uh, along a slightly uneven surface. And what actually should happen if you actually build a car with just four wheels connected with rigid hinges is that the, the car can't really drive well because it's really bumpy because every the hinge is rigid from the position perspective. It only allows one axis, one degree of kind of rotation, one degree of freedom. And so what should happen is the car would bump all the time. It actually didn't happen because the way we used to model hinges used to be with the springs. Um, everything, every, every type of joint and contact was modeled with springs, um, which we ran with for a while. But then when we rebuilt the physics engine to be more kind of rigorously defined mathematically from the principles of, hey, you know, the hinge should really constrain the movement um, along these axes, um, et cetera. So it turns, it's less um, a collection of springs now and more of a, here's a giant set of equations that describe all of the different constraints on all of the joints and contacts and how the bodies move, et cetera. How do we solve this giant matrix? And there's like really complex techniques for this, which we won't go into, but we actually talked about some of this on GDC, I believe last year or maybe one year prior. Um, but, um, what we found was suddenly the simplest car doesn't really work well anymore. But the reason it doesn't work is because it shouldn't have worked in the first place. And so then we said, well, okay, you actually need a suspension. And what's the simplest way to build a suspension? And so there's like, um, uh, there's a few types of joints that you can use to model the situation. But so the physics system's job is basically to solve all of this. 
And solving all of this is an extremely compute heavy thing. I think it's fair to say if we had a million times the compute, the GPU, the RAM, the bandwidth, we could very quickly build a physics engine to harvest that. We would just simulate at a lower level or the molecular level, and we would have liquids and fracture, and someday we're going to have that. That said, given what we have today, we're doing a lot of work on performance and scale. We have amazing infrastructure. Uh, shout out to physics team, infra platform teams um, who are building this. Can you just uh, maybe really at a high level share some of the stuff we're doing to simulate more objects in mm -hmm. the Roblox world? Yeah, so um, really you have, what we found is you have to attack problems like this from pretty much every angle possible. So at a very, very, very high level, you know, uh, what we had to do was, um, we had to change a lot of the algorithms that we used to do all of the simulation. One simple example from kind of, um, uh, one, one, one thing that we've, we've done sort of semi-recently was um, when we think about how the physics system treats all of these different objects, what used to happen is the physics system just knows about each object in isolation, so each part, each wheel, et cetera. And so when it has to compute contacts between these, um, it's using what's called a broad phase structure, where it's a spatial sort of database of sorts where you can put different objects with different positions, et cetera, and ask it, where are the contacts? Where do the contacts lie? So what we had to do recently was we had to introduce a new sort of layer between the broad phase and the code that actually resolves the contact points called mid phase, where we say, and remember, Roblox doesn't have cars, but looking at the way the car is built, we can apply some heuristics to say it sort of looks like an object that is, you know, a single object that moves in space. And so it probably will be efficient for us to construct a mid-phase representation around this to be able to resolve collisions more quickly. And the power here is that the data definition didn't change, the APIs didn't change, it's just an internal optimization that says, well, we, we know how compound objects are built out of simpler shapes in Roblox, so let's take advantage of this. So there's a lot of algorithmic optimizations like this, or you know, there's like really, really arcane stuff that goes in, in, in the physics solver where we take the graph of the bodies and joints, and then do graph analysis um, for people who think graph theory isn't sort of applicable to real world problems. It actually sometimes is. You know, we do graph analysis. We say, how do we extract connected components out of this? We say, um, some 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 kind of um, some objects in this graph are connected to a lot of other different objects, which has a performance problem for some parts of the simulation. So there's a way to kind of split the graph in half. So there's a lot of complex algorithm magic that goes on there, right? But this is kind of the first step, right? So then the next step is how do we make this code run efficiently? To that end, a lot of the physics code, and we've touched a bit about this last time, but a lot of the physics code uses SIMD to uh, do multiple computations at the same time to take advantage of the modern computational um, sort of resources available in CPUs. And again, there's a balance there between um, 
how far do we go? Um, where, when does the code get more complicated to maintain? Um, when do performance wins kind of end up being less interesting? Uh, so we try to organize it such that we kind of write this code once and then we target multiple different platforms with multiple different instruction sets through an abstraction layer. So there is like, we try to make sure that from the point of view of running the real code on the real machine on the real core, we are efficient. But then the next step is, well, no machine that has shipped in the last decade has a single core. How do we take advantage of this? Which is also interesting because if you think about this, again, we are modeling this completely arbitrary problem um, that you, know, you have parts, you have connections between them, you have contacts. What is the best way to parallelize this? What's the best way to make sure that as much contact as possible runs as parallel as possible? And so we, we've done a lot of work on this in the recent years as well. So now we are, I wouldn't say we are sort of 100% parallel in the sense that I think there's, there's still ways for us to improve and we are working on them, but we are very parallel in terms of physics simulation as well now. Yeah, one trivia question for the audience. I think there's early videos where we called our, physics engine and n for engine mm -hmm. because even early on we were hoping it would scale linearly rather than n squared or n cubed and and when something scales linearly it's more elegant to throw this wonderful parallelism at that we're doing um and for our audience i just want to highlight that when we're talking about cars here we could just as well be talking about you or me and our people and our avatars we could be talking about trees. We could be talking about houses. We could be talking about a soccer ball because this is we're using car as a metaphor for just everything in the world that is all to the extent possible running through the the physics engine and these other engines, and and it leads to um, arsony maybe. You know, we're really not doing all we could do today, just given how fast we can do engineering and what we can simulate someday. So how about you and I, what's your, do you have a top one, two or three potential extensions to physics? And then I have one or two, three, one of my pets would be um, wind and air resistance. So you can make real airplanes, better job with fire, um, better job with fluids. Do you have any top of the list for you that you're hoping to do someday? Yeah, so the wind, um definitely is like is very interesting and it's actually uh we are looking into we're kind of doing research on what it would take to do some of this in real time because again it's a lot of these a lot of these problems end up being pretty hard to solve in roblox because of the amount of freedom that we want to give to our developers and this is exciting this is like an interesting opportunity for example this means that when you have an airplane you know we should figure out how to simulate kind of aerodynamics for the airplane for the wind to work really well but the problem is that an airplane at any point may lose a wing and our system should be able to adapt to this and the response changes yes so it's, it's difficult yeah so th these are definitely on my list um one of the there's there's two other things that i'm kind of really excited about one of them is simple um maybe three things so uh one of them is a bit simpler but the two are a bit more complicated so one is just very basic and we sort of used to have something like this at roblox but it never worked really really well and we want to make sure that it does is uh breakable joints um which you can do a lot of things today with scripts but again we've talked about this before right the the 
the power of physics is that you can set up these complex situations that work without any code and have behavior that you didn't expect. And so to that end, having an ability for any joint to say, oh, by the way, if there's too much force on this, it's going to break and, you know, it will just disconnect the bodies and it'll work. That's going to be super fun. One other thing that I kind of want to get a bit more into is various types of soft body simulation. So we actually talked about the car. The car is interesting. So we've talked about the suspension, etc. Still, the way you model the car today in Roblox isn't correct because the wheels are rigid. The wheels are a cylinder. There's like a collision response to them that acts as if you took a barrel and, you know, use the barrel instead of your wheels. So um, soft body um, is, is going to be interesting. And one, one other thing that's super cool and super demanding and also hard to solve correctly is fracture. Uh, dynamic fracture, real-time fracture. So these three things are the things that I'm excited about that I think um, at some point we will be able to do, hopefully. Yeah, super cool. I like that our conversation has started with this core fundamental digital stuff and physics and objects. And then we, from there, we move on to another thing that is typically called rendering in the video game and graphics world, which is about visual appearance. And I, I like that we've started from the digital and then gone to the rendering side. Can you talk a little about, you know, how we try to balance the function with the visual fidelity? I think most of the Roblox fans are gonna say, well, you probably started with functional because, you know, Roblox is looking a lot better lately than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, um, so rendering is an interesting challenge. Um, we've talked about this last time, right? That the fundamental architecture of Roblox implies the fact that we do um, really a lot of the visual related work on the client. So when we talked about the physics simulation, a lot of that system, and we didn't really talk about this, but the system is distributed, so part of it can run on the server. And if we wanted to, we could run the entire simulation on the server, and the, the whole stack supports it. But for rendering, we um, can't really do this very efficiently. Um, for one, the kind of camera angle for different people is just different. So what you see and how, how well you want to see it is different. So this brings us conundrum kind of how do we render this pretty much arbitrary world on a pretty much arbitrary device while maintaining good performance? So there's a few things that go into this. Um, one is the rendering engine that we have is really hyper-optimized for the types for the for the way people build worlds at Roblox and for the types of constructs that you see. And it has things that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a typical game render engine because it focuses on different things. So you have when you have cars that are built of many, many individual pieces, suddenly from the rendering perspective, you have many independent objects that can have different transforms, different states, et cetera, that you have to render. Whereas traditionally, maybe you would say, oh, I want to build a hyper-optimized mesh. I'm going to have an artist kind of create one for the entire car. Um, and then maybe I'll play some tricks with the doors are dynamic, they can be dynamically open, but maybe I'll play some tricks with like adding virtual bones there so that I don't have to pay extra cost for rendering them. So a lot of this world is, is focused on kind of what is the smallest number of objects that we can render at a single time, at least this used to be the case. For us, it's more like, okay, here's a lot of objects that 
this is the problem. This is what the problem looks like. There's a lot of objects that we just expect in the world. A lot of them are similar. A lot of them may be, you know, parts, blocks of different orientations, different sizes, different colors, different materials, but they're blocks of the geometry shared. Some of them are not similar um, when we think about the characters and the different sort of meshes that they may have on them. How do we build a system that optimizes maximally for this? So a lot of the rendering work at Roblox is kind of building custom systems that sometimes you wouldn't expect to see in a game engine to say the way the problem is defined lends itself to a different solution that can be more optimal. So these are things like dynamic aggregation systems where we say, oh, these different meshes always move similarly to each other. So we will group them together for various purposes. For example, to do visibility calling, we can just do this on sort of the compound object instead of spending time doing this on every one object. Or even for rendering, we can pre-compose a mesh sort of at runtime to render um, all of these parts at the same time. But again, all of the systems have to expect anything may change at any given point in time, right? So this is kind of one part. So then the other part is, um, no matter how much we optimize any of the systems, we know this is an impossible task. We know we can render, never render the world at a full fidelity on any given device. And the problem here though, is that um, performance is a different, performance is difficult to kind of estimate correctly if you don't know how the system works underneath. It's tempting to say, oh, this, 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 this level kind of renders slowly, but it must be because it has, I don't know, like too many parts or, um, you know, there's like too many light objects here. And sometimes your intuition is true and sometimes it's not. And so what we had to invest in is a system that knows a lot of the internals about kind of what the costs are of different parts of the system, knows what the fidelity trade-off is. So if you don't render a part far away, what does this mean? If you render a part with fewer triangles, what does this mean? If you simplify the shading on this part, you have to spend fewer instructions on the GPU to, um, to run sort of pixel shading processing on this. What does this mean for performance? And so all of these things combined feed into the system, which we called FRM many, many years ago in the name stock, which stands for Frame Rate Manager. Um, and the job of that system is to say, well, what can I adjust to hopefully meet my performance deadline in a way that A, hopefully gives, gets me as close to this um, kind of to this target as possible, B, compromises visual fidelity in a reasonable way, like the, the game is still playable, right? It doesn't feel like, oh my God, I just, you know, like I don't see anything on my screen so I can't play it or I just really don't like the way the game looks. So the degradation has to be graceful. And does it in a reasonably unobtrusive way to the extent possible? Because again, if like something switches on your screen constantly on and off, you know, it's, it's going to be very distracting. So this is a really big part of, and it, it, it's similar to the physics world, I think, where We've spent a bunch of um, time on this and we've gotten to a re reasonably good place, but we are still working on the system today. And really it's it's a thing that we'll have to keep iterating on over and over and over. Yeah, I love the concept of this, of the FRM, because in a sense it is art. And for the users out there, those performance targets really translate into human factors. How does Roblox feel for any individual person on any individual device and these very difficult trade-offs you and the team is having to make between the number of things you see 
the fidelity, the speed of frames per second, the distance. We're trying to make the absolute best, most optimized decision there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably fair to say in out there right now, we probably have a 20, 30, or even 50 to one range in the amount of power that various people have in their hands when they're playing Roblox. And we're trying to work with all of that. Definitely, definitely. I think the range, the range of compute power, especially in the GPU land, is pretty astounding. I mean, in the CPU land, it also gets really crazy once you consider the number of cores. But in GPUs, I mean, the very simple way to think about this is that if you think of the power consumption that is um, customary sort of for the top end desktop GPUs, it's in the range of, I would say, like 300 watts for the really top end. If you think about your phone, your phone usually has a chip that uh, has the CPU and the GPU on the die. The total consumption for that entire chip is like a few watts, uh, could be five for high-end phones, could be like two for low-end. The GPU is like maybe half of this. And then also the performance per watt um, may vary like several times. And so you kind of combine all of these things together and it could be a thousand X in terms of compute power easily. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a very, very large <clears throat> sort of scaling uh, gap that we have to jump, right? So um, it, it really takes um, kind of every trick that we can uh, find, everything that we could possibly do. So we've talked about the scaling, we've talked about <clears throat> um, custom systems that are, sort of optimized for the type of, types of worlds that we have at Roblox. But it's also the case that, you know, really the entire team that we have, um, everybody is really an expert on what does performance look like? What does, how do the GPUs work? How do the graphics APIs work? What is the best way kind of for us to write code that is hyper efficient across all of these? Um, we have adopted the low level rendering APIs, Metal and Vulkan, pretty early. Um, a lot of people may be surprised, but I think we were one of the first, not the first, but one of the first titles on Android that started running Vulkan. And a lot of these things kind of fit into we look at the entire problem, we say, okay where can we extract more performance once we are kind of, once we've settled the scaling curve? Of course, it's tempting to say, oh, um, this frame rate rendering manager can just drop fidelity to the extent when performance isn't a problem. But the less efficient the system is, the more you have to compromise fidelity to reach real time. So essentially improving efficiency of the system gives us um, extra fidelity gives the users the extra fidelity on the device that they happen to run and also gives us some leeway to say oh um kind of we need to do some work we need to uh run some computations as part of some features that is more difficult to sacrifice than others for example the lighting engine kind of has to run to some in some capacity because the most basic way to think about this is you have a room that is indoors, there is no sun, let's say it's nighttime, there's no lights. Well, the room is dark. Um, how do we, like, we can't completely disable lighting because it can be critical to you being able to see anything, but also a lot of games on Roblox use lights for um, gameplay effects. Uh, and really it's a classical game design kind of trick where, for example, oh, you don't have an arrow that points the user to where they need to go, but there's a light there. And 
you through visual association, you say, oh, uh, this place might, must be interesting, right? And so you go there. Let's say you disable the slide. Suddenly you don't know where to go. So there's some systems where we have to ask not just um, how does it scale all the way down to like taking almost zero compute, but also what is the minimal acceptable level of fidelity and how do we get to that with as small of a cost as can be? Yeah, and a shout out to the rendering team, because just like the physics team and other teams, uh, there was a time 15 years ago when most video games, I don't think, were lighted by dynamic lights that you could put anywhere at any scale. And just like with the, the assumption that the world's physically based, you know, wonderful job ushering in this notion that it's lit in the same way by the sun and by lights and some are spotlights by where they're placed. So just want to do a, a great big shout out to the team on that. Now, um, so just as with physics and just as with rendering, there's another really key part of the Roblox world. And um, there was a time 15 years ago when there was a small subset of the video game industry called networked games. And a lot of things were not networked at the time. And in the Roblox world, everything is always online. It's always multiplayer. It's always networked. And that we, we made the decision early on that even a single player experience would use the same engine and the same networking experience. So we didn't have two things. Can you share... So if I'm in one Roblox place and I'm in New York City and I'm waving at you and you're in Buenos Aires on a different device and you wave back at me and we're both rendered in 3D, that seems like a pretty complex thing. Uh, can you share a little around what's going on to make that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as you said, all of the experiences are networked and very, very early on, we made a decision which um, I think at the time, a lot of games that were networked were peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, but we made the decision that there should be a centralized server that runs somewhere on our infrastructure, which again is different from what a lot of games, even some games to this day, I think do um, servers that are running on one of the clients. And this is complicated for, for many reasons. So we said, well, really the server-side simulation is so important. It's so important for that to be secure. It's so important for that to run on the hardware that we control, that it's gonna be in one of our data centers. There's a server that's running. So um, I forget which cities we were in, but wh wh whatever the two cities are, both of us are connecting to one server when we are in one physical, uh, um, well, virtual, um, virtual location, but we are co-present there, right? Um, this is the first fun part because where is the server? Um, very, very early, in very, very early on in Roblox, the answer used to be well, it's somewhere in US. It's probably around a very large metropolitan area. So you know, maybe if you are next to New York, maybe it's in New York. Uh, but really, if you are in Europe or in Australia, um, maybe there isn't a server close by. So now we have many, many servers around the globe, and um, the way we pick the server is kind of a, a balance of many factors. One of them is the latency of communication, which roughly corresponds to kind of physical proximity, right? So um, in an ideal situation, there's going to be a server somewhere in between us uh, so that our round trips to the server are reasonably, reasonably similar. So then what happens is there is a very low latency um, connection be between um, the player and 
you know, that server. We do a lot of magical kind of network infrastructure stuff to make that even more, even more real. And um, again, this is something that we didn't used to have. It used to be that we were really at the mercy of the public internet and kind of how, how low the latency can be. But now we, um, due to the scale and kind of due to uh, what we can do now because of how, how large we've grown, we can take a lot of this problem under our control as well. So then uh, there's this connection and this connection uses UDP to transport all the data which is super critical because if you think about this, there's many, many different types of messages that the client and the server in Roblox have to um, have to exchange. Some of them are more latency sensitive. Some of them are less so. Some of them are like you can't lose them at all because if you lose them, you miss some, if maybe I'm pressing a button and the server needs to know that I've pressed the button. And even if that message takes like half a second to arrive because there's a network connectivity drop, it has to arrive. Like there's no question, right? Uh, whereas for some other data, it's kind of less um, less significant. So we multiplex a lot of these different types of data and we have complex algorithms in this transport stack that try to estimate the bandwidth that you are running at, estimate the kind of um, the round trip time, figure out when it's appropriate to resend the data that we thought we have lost, things like this. A lot of this code is custom as well. So then uh, on top of the stack is the replication system. And this is the real magical thing that takes this object model that we talked about and says most of the parts of this object model are replicated, which means that when on the server you see a change in something, you have to figure out how to send it, which is difficult because, okay, so the scale of the problem is very large. We've talked about the fact that, you know, you can have millions of these primitive objects, maybe more. You may have hundreds of players connected and for different players, for different objects, for different properties, the priority that you would intuitively assign to that change is different. And so when you wave at me from, you know, half a globe away, we have to consider, okay, so there is this wave motion that we have to send. Um, maybe we don't have to send it immediately or maybe we do. There is a lot of other data that goes on on the wire what is more important and what is less important, what goes first and what goes last, right? Um, to what extent can we push back some of these updates to make room for some others? And so all of this logic then has to run on the server, which does this determination for hundreds of players. And so all of these algorithms that run there have to be, again, hyper-efficient, have to scale across many, many cores that the server runs on, which again, it's like, you know, fun fact, um, Many years ago, like four years ago, I think, or three years ago, four years ago, um, Roblox servers all ran on a single core, which is fascinating because, you know, um, it's hard to believe. And of course, none of the servers were single core as far as hardware went, but we have a large cloud infrastructure that has to serve many, many, many different games. And for the efficiency of this infrastructure, all of that is sort of virtualized, I don't want to say exactly virtualized because it's somewhat the wrong word, like we, um, we run bare metal and things like this, but uh, it's somewhat virtualized, let's put it this way. But then we started saying, well, when you want to have a single server um, serve hundreds of players versus just one or two or five, well, the scale of the computation has to be very different. How do we balance all of this? So, so um, anyway, so there's a lot of these algorithms and a lot of this determination that goes into kind of what data to send, um, when to send it, and then also how 
efficiently can we compress this data on the wire? Because uh, there's, it's kind of interesting. There's many, many things that go into the what, um, how do we send the data on the wire? It's tempting to think about this problem as pure bandwidth. You know, fewer bits on the wire are good, more bits are bad. And in some cases, this is true, and to some extent, this is true, but you also have to consider, for example, if we send the data to one client in the exact same way that we send it to another client, this means we can cache this data and reuse this data between different clients, which in some cases means the server can set, can process more data. And if bandwidth isn't the limit, this is the optimal choice. Um, in some cases, bandwidth is the limit. So we have to make a lot of this determination and ask kind of what is the correct compression method? What's the, uh, what's the precision that we have to reach with this data, et cetera. And a lot of these um, code kind of has to run whenever things happen on the server or on the client, and we have to replicate all of this. That's super cool. Um, so one neat byproduct of this, I'm going to do a historical um, back in time to eight or nine or 10 years ago. And, and imagine a time when instead of um, millions and millions of people on Roblox, there's hundreds and um, we're a much smaller team and it's early in the networking model and i'm in my office and someone goes oh my gosh um in this place to be who knows what all of a sudden weird objects are appearing and then oh my gosh in this place everyone who goes there the the world is disappearing and everything is falling and in this place other weird things are happening and and we solved this really early on. We started taking steps. Um, it was a result really of this networking vision that we initially had that everything's replicated everywhere. Can you share a bit about what was happening in that situation and then what we've done over time to make that really not happen anymore? Mm -hmm. So um, the this is the interesting kind of trade-off and balance i think in the whole in the whole problem where um you can't replicate everything to everyone at you know at the same time in the same order etc necessarily because this might be like very inefficient but there is consistency guarantees that are important for the system to actually function so the very basic example maybe is um, you have an object that sits on top of another object and if you replicate the object that sits on top first and if you give the client the right to do physics simulation for that object, well, the client has a partial view of the world. And so what happens is the object falls down, like this should not happen, right? And so there's a lot of this kind of complicated consistency rules that we have to think of. So this is, I think, one problem. The other problem is um, we used to have this uh, a few systems that were kind of um, the correct and pure way to organize the kind of dependencies and all of these physics interactions, et cetera, is to store them in this object model. And so this is why when I was saying, oh, you know, there's a car and there's an um, axle um, and there's the, um, not the axle, like the suspension system and the frame, the frame is welded to the suspension system. And what happens there is there's an actual object in the object model. But it actually, there was actually was a time when we had this thing called surface wells, which wasn't quite like this. It said, well, let me look at this part and let me look at this part and this parts approximately touch you know um they probably should be welded to each other and this is interesting because then you start thinking about this and then you say well 
Okay, so does this mean that we have to send the bit precise orientation and position of every single part every single time? Because at any point when you don't do this, the client may not create this weld object and something blows up, right? So I think there were some of these implicit kind of contracts and conventions that um, worked well early on, but as we started kind of pushing the system in terms of what it can do performance-wise, bandwidth-wise, et cetera, uh, we just had to rework some of them. Hey, so what... Hey, we're getting near the end, but I think one shout out to anyone who's worked on the C++ engine at Roblox at any time, and we could divide this up, uh, systems, networking, modeling, physics, rendering. If we look at all the places where this engine's running on servers, PC, Mac, iOS, Android, Xbox, um, VR, even some utility servers, Roblox Studio, what percent of these various things would you say is the exact same code everywhere for these various subsystems? Because I think it's surprising and it's it's been one of the keys to our efficiency. Yeah, so really most of the code is, so um, there are systems that just don't run in some of these contexts. So for example, rendering systems, well, Rendering usually doesn't run on the server except for this utility service that renders thumbnails, which is the same rendering code. But you know, like most of the time, you wouldn't expect rendering code to run there. But when the code does run, so um, really most of this code is um, cross-platform. It's all the same. There is a few exceptions. So one exception is the CMD code that we've talked about. So there is like an abstraction, but the abstraction has different implementations for different platforms. And that code is different for ARM-based uh, devices versus Intel-based devices. Um, or rendering is an interesting example, right? Where historically the way the, the just the rendering landscape has formed in the world is there's, there's many different APIs and different shading languages and kind of to have the most efficient render in the world that runs on an iPhone, you have to use a different stack from if you wanted to run it on Android. And there are sometimes kind of abstraction libraries that some other people have created that try to bridge the gap. But because they try to be as general as possible, like arbitrary code has to run, um, they tend to lose a lot of efficiency. So what we have done is we have our own abstraction layer and our own shader compiler that from the same source from the same implementation kind of synthesizes the implementations for these different platforms. And so that code has to be duplicated, but it's a relatively small amount of code. Kind of it's, I don't know, it's like less than 10% of the total rendering code and total rendering code is like 10% of the total Roblox engine code. So, you know, the math, the math works out. Really, these are the prime examples. A lot of the other code is just, you know, the same across the platforms. There's some utility code that's a bit less interesting that of course has to be duplicated for different platforms is like, I don't know, the way you display a notification is different between, again, different mobile operating systems. But there's not a whole lot of this code and that code isn't performance sensitive. One interesting thing that we are starting to do more and more of is we relied, um, always relied heavily on the sort of C++ compilers, C++ libraries. And these are actually different for different platforms. And so we started asking, you know, to what extent can we simplify and unify this? To what extent can we use custom, um, either the same libraries or custom hyper-performance optimized containers for most of the code? And this already happens for like half of the code base, but maybe not the other half. Or we started to say, well, really having two different compilers 
uh, or it used to be that we ran three different compilers. And in some way, this is good, but in some other way, this is bad because um, you're missing out on optimizations that one compiler does do and the other doesn't do. And on the other platform, you're kind of missing out the other way. So we are starting to think what would it take to kind of simplify the entire landscape even further so that from the source code to the final platform, there's as few moving pieces that randomly change between different platforms as possible. Okay, that just opened up about 100 other questions that I'm not going to ask, but are super, super exciting. Um, Hey, Arsene, I think we did a pretty good job describing the inner mechanics if it was a rocket engine of the turbo pump injector system or whatever. And for those of you in the audience that your head is hurting just a little, I think it's completely okay because this was pretty heavy stuff. And I think if you picked up half of it, that's great. Um, but I think we went pretty deep. And we have one more, I think, future talk on the docket as well, Arsene. So uh, thank you for that as well. It was great to be with you today. I think our audience really appreciates all your insight. I really enjoyed the interview as well. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. And I think really what happened is we condensed, you know, 15 years of work by a team that right now is like very large, like hundreds of people to, you know, an hour of conversation. And so uh, it's difficult to wrap your hand, ha head around kind of everything that went through, which is, I think, very fair. Yeah. So, hey, a, a shout out to the Roblox team. Thank you to our community. We hope everyone out there is healthy and as safe as possible. That's all for this episode of Tech Talks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about careers at Roblox, please visit roblox.com forward slash careers. I'm Dave Bazuki, and see you again next time.